One of the most uh, stunning things that the Lord did, very famous. We won't turn there because I'll end up preaching it, and then we'll be here for like another two hours, two hours, two days. Um, was when he healed a man who was let down through the ceiling. You remember that? It's in Mark chapter 2. Very, very famous and very important to Mark's gospel. It's right there at the beginning. Because the man's friends brought him, he couldn't move. He was on a stretcher. And so insistent were these people and so trusting of Jesus that they took the roof off and you can see the sheetrock, you know, falling in on people in the house and they're letting, and then they let their friend in. It would have, can you imagine being in a, you know, Jesus is healing people and he's talking to people and all of a sudden, <laughs> and the roof's coming off. And they let this guy down on, you know, ropes. And he, the man can't move. And what was the first thing Jesus said to him? Your sins are forgiven. And he did this on purpose. He, he was deliberately shocking the Pharisees. And he was shocking the guy who was there to be healed. He did end up healing him, but first he healed, he healed his heart. First he forgave his sins. And you can think to yourself, well, wait a minute, how deeply am I thinking? I'm here for a physical thing. And the Lord said, there's something more important that I'm dealing with. And in fact, the sin has caused all the illness and all of the evil in the world already. So I'm going to deal with that first. And it shocked everybody. It shocked the Pharisees. It shocked the guy that got healed. And, and then Jesus said, hey, which is harder, to heal a person and have him stand up who's been paralyzed? Or to say your sins are forgiven? And yeah, ask yourself that question. Um, it takes a little bit of thought. Because it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But to actually forgive sins based on a sacrifice that would yet be made, that sacrifice was not easy. So to prove that he had the right to do this and the authority to forgive sins, he did heal the man, and the man got up and walked away. And everyone was amazed with who Jesus was. Now, when you hear this, I want you to remember the most important thing, well, there's several important things about the authority of the Lord and who he is, but I want you to remember that the man that was healed was was crippled. He could not help himself. He couldn't do it on his own. And it was sheer confidence, desperate confidence in Jesus that brought him into actually the complete grace of the triune God through the second person of the Trinity brought this man into a miracle of forgiveness and regeneration. That's absolutely amazing. But he was Completely unable to do it for himself. Because the Lord only touches people who realize they cannot heal themselves. That's how he works. That's how he always worked. That's why he was working with people at the low end of the food chain wherever he went. And the really hip religious, and everybody's religious in those days in Israel. There were no atheists. All the religious folks, he basically ignored or when they argued with him, he'd put him in their place. He always, he only spoke to people who were, so to speak, incapacitated on their own, completely lost. And so it has always been, yes? 
Now, in the Old Testament, there's a prophet who said of himself, I am completely lost. And the Lord spoke, and he was cleansed. I want to spend some time talking about that Old Testament prophet. His name is Isaiah. I'd like you to turn there. Because we're starting a little series over the next few weeks in the book of Isaiah. And the preaching team, there'll be a different preacher each Sunday, will be talking about the servant oracles which speak directly of Jesus. There's four of them in the book of Isaiah. And so the guys are going to be preaching on this over the next four weeks. So to begin with, I want to, uh, I want to start with Isaiah 6, which is the call of Isaiah. And it's very, very crucial. The call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. You say, well, wait a minute. Isaiah wasn't crippled, was he? Well, we'll see. If you know it well, you know exactly what I am referring to. Let me give you a little bit of background. People, uh, when they read the prophets, are sometimes confused because there's so much um, indictment in the prophets. Let me remind you of what's going on here. This takes place in the year 740, more or less, pretty much agreed that it's 740 B.C., so in the middle of the 8th century B.C. And the nation of Israel and Judah are two different countries because of the civil war in 930. And so there's been a civil war. The, the nations are in two different states. But they are. there's two things that are true in the 8th century. One is that they were relatively prosperous and pretty self-satisfied. Because the Assyrians were leaving them alone and the Egyptians were leaving them alone. And it was rare for them to be left alone. So they were left alone for, for a generation or two. And they began to flourish and they began to have wealth and they began to have power among themselves in both the north and the south, Israel and Judah. However, then they had the temple in, in Jerusalem. They had the temple. But they were only pretending to worship God in the temple. Have you ever known anybody who simply pretended to worship God? Isn't it interesting that a person who's pretending to worship God can look just like a person who's really worshiping God? And the only, only one of them is really relying on grace. Only one of them is really trusting. But they look the same. They were going to the temple. They were making their sacrifices, but they were also sacrificing to every other God in the pantheon. And they had been disobedient to the Lord for over 200 years. So, by the time this takes place, the Lord sends his prophets and their job. They were like um, uh, district attorneys for God toward Israel and Judah, indicting them for breaking the covenant, the Deuteronomic covenant, Deuteronomy. God had said, you will be my people, I will be your God. He married them at Mount Sinai. When you think of Mount Sinai, I want you to think of a marriage ceremony. Where the Lord says, I will be yours, you will be mine. And almost from the very beginning, remember they made a golden calf? His bride wriggled out of his arms, would not go into the new country that he had prepared, and struggled against idolatry, which he called adultery, for the next several hundred years all through their history. And especially after they built Solomon's temple... The Lord filled the temple with his glory, but then within less than a generation, they were already worshiping idols in the temple precincts under Solomon's leadership, if you can believe that, towards the end of his life. 
And from then on, they wrestled against God. So the prophets were sent to indict and say, you need to repent, you need to come back. So when you read Isaiah, and we're going to see a portion of what he says to people, you can get a feel for what the Lord is saying. He's saying to a sort of to his wife who had run away. He's sort of saying, come back. And in the process, he indicts for all of the injustice and all of the violence. He said that because you're worshiping idols, there's violence everywhere. Now, Isaiah is in this. He's, he's immersed in his own culture. And he's aware of everything going on around him. And he himself, by the way, he's known as the Prince of the Prophets. He was very well connected. He he had access to the palace, access to the kings. And he's very well educated. The Hebrew in Isaiah is wonderful. Hebrew scholars tell us it's some of the very, very best. And so he was articulate. He was smart. He was connected. But when the Lord called him... Some amazing things take place in his heart. And in Isaiah 6, what we find is a flashback to the beginning of his ministry. He's a relatively young man when this takes place. So now this is the year 640 or 740 uh, BC, the the year that King Uzziah died. He had been king for over 50 years and um, he was a pretty good king. Uh, He made some pretty bad blunders in his later years, but he was a pretty good king. And so the administration now has changed and they're they're coming into, they're coming out of a time of um, prosperity and there's some real dark clouds on the horizon because eventually the Assyrians are going to come down against them and God is going to bring Israel into judgment for its 200 years of, uh, of apostasy. So he calls Isaiah into this. Let's have a look at what goes on. And we're going to see some things about the Lord himself here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He has a vision. Now, this is real. The immaterial world is real. Okay? There there really is, in the invisible realm, what we would call material, but we just can't see it. Okay? This is a real thing. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. We'll talk about this in a minute. I just want to read it first. Above him stood the seraphim. It doesn't say how many of them. There might have been a lot. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, and this is antiphonal calling back and forth, So it's a constant worship that's going on. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Oh my goodness. Now you've read this and you may have seen it in in all kinds of different literature, but I want you to get the feel for just how stunning this was for him. And let's look at a a few things as we unwrap it. First of all, the Lord's throne. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, not a recliner. Very interesting. What does it mean that he was on a throne? It means he's a real king. He's an active king. 
and he really is in charge. It speaks of his sovereignty and his majesty and his power. An overwhelming sense, because when it says that his robe filled the temple, and then later it says the temple was filled with smoke, it meant that this was an overwhelming sense of the authority and the sovereignty of God. He's on a throne. Secondly, notice um, in the uh, the throne guardians. Those, those are the seraphim. Seraph, the Hebrew word, means a flaming one. And um, these are incredibly powerful creatures. It's the only place they're mentioned in the Bible. Uh, other types of divine beings, what we would call angels, uh, are cherub, uh, cherubs. These are seraphs or seraphim. And they appeared to be so bright or flaming. Um, you got to understand, if you don't understand, we call them angels because it's the only term we use, a very generic term. It, it, malak, it just means, in Hebrew, it just means a messenger. But calling these creatures simply angels or simply messengers would be like in World War II calling Admiral Nimitz a sailor. You understand? Uh, there are varying degrees of authority and power in the spirit realm. All kinds of them. Paul talks about it in Ephesians. Um, in two or three different places. And it's assumed all through the Bible. The invisible realm. They're not, I mean, an angel simply is, it's a title for someone who does what God wants done. But the creatures themselves are unbelievably beautiful and powerful and dangerous. They're very dangerous. If they are if they are told by God to destroy something, the thing is destroyed with almost without effort. They killed 185,000 Assyrians at one point and one night. One, one angel did this. These are unbelievably powerful creatures. We don't know how many of them, but it says myriad of myriads. Uh, there are many of these types of creatures that are around the throne of God in the invisible realm. And every time anybody sees this, they are stunned deep down inside. This is what's happening to uh, uh, to Isaiah. And notice um, the Lord's holiness. This, they are actually crying out, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. Hmm. Uh, that's, uh, to say it three times in Hebrew is the way that you would say very, very holy, okay? Except they don't say very, very. They say it three times. And usually they only say it twice. If they want to talk about really pure gold, almost always, if it's rendered in your English Bible, pure gold, it says in Hebrew, gold, gold. Okay? So when it is repeated three times, it's this is a stunning reality of the holiness of God. Now, let me talk about holiness for just a second. Because it's a, it's a word we don't use except as an expletive. Which I would, con- I would advise you not to use the term holy as an expletive. Because it is a direct reference to the godness of God. To his power, his infinity, with regard to three areas. And you find this just going through the scriptures. Look at how the word holy is used. When it's used of us, what it means is not that we are morally perfect, but that we belong to the holy God. That's what the term is used when it regards us. But when it's about him, it's infinity with regard to three things. Separation, superiority, and moral purity. Separation meaning he's very different than we are. He is not just a, a big one of us. 
He's completely, unimaginably different than we are. We've got to get this into our heads. When it talks about God being holy, it means he's totally, completely, unimaginably different than we are. And we say, well, aren't we created in his image? Isn't there some similarity? Yes, but he's not created in our image. And boy, I tell you, if we don't get that straight, then we will not appreciate anything else that's being said in this passage or anywhere else. The holiness of God, his absolute separation. Holy means to be separated. The term actually means to be separate, to be different. So that means monism is wrong. Monism is the idea that everything is God. Pantheism. All that stuff is bunk. We rely on him. If he, I sometimes ask people, if God stopped thinking about you, how would that affect you? You would cease to exist. That's how reliant on him we are. He's infinitely above us. Infinitely above us. Not just, and I I used to use the illustration of an archangel over an earthworm in terms of quality of being. Except that breaks down because the archangel is still a created being. God is uncreated. When you talk about holy, you're talking about that separation. And secondly, superiority. Superiority of being. His being is just infinitely, infinitely better than ours. I mean, it's it's hard for us to understand and grasp the superiority of his being and his character. And that's why whenever anybody sees it, they fall over. They lose, you know, Daniel sees it, Ezekiel sees it. I just finished a series in the in the prophets, the writing prophets, and whenever they have any kind of vision of God, they lose strength. Daniel says, I couldn't, I was, I couldn't even stand up. The angel had to help me stand up. There's this unbelievable presence, this incredible power, superiority to be around someone who's infinitely superior to you. It's kind of crushing, which is why Isaiah says what he says next. This is all holiness, separation, superiority, and moral goodness. The goodness of God, the moral purity of God is so consuming, it is to evil what a fire is to bacteria, to germs. God's presence, his presence If evil comes into his presence and is not shielded in any way by the grace of God or by the patience of God, if evil comes into his presence and is not shielded from his presence, it simply is vaporized. So when we talk about holy, 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 and you have these amazing creatures saying this antiphonally in God's presence, this is a scene, no wonder, Isaiah is stunned. And notice the Lord's command. He, he is Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. That, do you know what, do you know what hosts means? Yahweh of hosts. Do you know what the hosts means? It means army. The Lord of the heavenly armies. Army? Does heaven need armies? Is there, are there armies in heaven? I mean, we have armies because we have wars. Why is God called over and over and over Yahweh Sabaoth? The Lord of the army, because there is a war in the invisible realm. And you've been drawn into it through the material realm. Paul talks about it in Ephesians. There is a war in the invisible realm. 
And Yahweh, who is not in a recliner, he's on a throne, and he's a commander of a of an army in the spirit realm, which is what he's going to draw Isaiah into to serve him. This is this is just mind blowing. And notice the word glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does that mean? What does glory mean? How would you answer that? You got kids or grandkids? Class, how would you answer? Grandma? Mom? Dad? What does glory mean? What would you say? I mean, aside from call Pastor Rick. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, what does glory mean? And when it says the whole earth is full of his glory and this is being impressed upon Isaiah, what, is it, what does that mean? Well, the term glory, kabod in Hebrew, means heaviness. It means weightiness. And we would use the word gravitas. Um, I remember a, f- a friend who was, a, this is many years ago, who was a lawyer in uh, this area. And uh, he's with the Lord now. But I remember him being described as a lawyer who, he was a good lawyer. And when he would come into a court or he would come into a meeting, everyone was quiet. I remember a guy saying that. When that guy walks in, everybody's quiet. And if he says something, everybody listens. That's called gravitas. That's the word glory. That's this word. And so gravitas is what we have in mind when we talk about God's gravitas. And he says the whole earth is full of it. And that means when you look around at the creation, you go, whoever created this is one heavy dude. And we use the term heavy that way. We do. We say, that's really heavy. You know, you hear a heavy conversation. Ah, oh, it's really heavy. It means gravitas, and it means God's gravitas. Um, so look at what the Lord is actually showing him here. He's got the throne with the throne guardians. He's got holiness, the Lord's command of everything, and his glory. If you can imagine what it would be like to be standing, just standing on the ground. I remember an earthquake in Santa Cruz. I'm from Santa Cruz and get earthquakes down there a lot. And a friend of mine, um, there, were, there had been a bad earthquake and they and their home was built against a cliff, and at the top of the cliff was a huge, huge boulder. And the earthquake came, and the boulder fell, and it missed the house, but it landed. The thing must have been like, I don't know, it was tons. It was really heavy. And it fell off, and it landed right next to the house. Can you imagine standing next to something really, really huge and have it hit the ground right next to you? It would... It, it would it would shake you deep down inside. It, it, the sound, the feeling, the whole... That is what Isaiah is feeling as he sees the presence of God. It's just... It shakes him to his core. So that's what he experiences. That's the scene. But look at his reaction to it. I said, woe is me. I said, woe is a semi-technical term in Hebrew. It means I am lost. I am crippled. I am done. This has scared me to death. I have nothing left. Woe is me. I am lost. He actually says, I am lost. I am empty, destroyed. You can put it in a bunch of different ways. It's just this utter sense of lostness. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts is what it is in the original. God Almighty or the Lord Almighty, I think, is the NIV rendering, but it's, but it's the Lord of hosts. His response is that he is completely undone. Personal devastation. I want you to take note of that. Personal devastation. Personal devastation. He's worse off than the crippled guy who was brought to Jesus. He can't do anything, and now he's frightened. He realizes how his life under the holiness of God is, it's just scary. Do you ever wonder, all human beings know that if the holiness of God shines on them like a bright light, they have to run away like a cockroach? We do, we do. We do it uh, theologically and philosophically by making excuses for all kinds of things. But when the bright light shines into the human soul, it's devastating. It's completely devastating. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I came here for some good news. What? I have not heard any yet. Well, it's coming. But see, this kind of amazement at who God is and this sense of loss and the sense of despair. He is in a state of despair. He's in a state where he literally has to throw himself on the mercy of God and he doesn't even have the strength to do that. He's not sure what's going to happen. Personal devastation and unclean lips. You say, well, what? He was, what, was he eating ribs? No, 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 no. This, what, what did Jesus say about, in fact, turn there. Turn to Matthew. Some of you look sleepy. I want you to, I want you to move the pages of your Bible. It'll wake up. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. When he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, what is he really getting at? Jesus, um, Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees said he was throwing out demons by the power of demons. And he said, that's blasphemy of the Spirit. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There's no forgiveness for that. And then he goes on in verse 33 and down through the next few verses. Have a look. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree... Uh, Bad and its fruit bad. The tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he said. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is what Isaiah is talking about. My heart is dirty and it comes out in my words. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give... Look at this. I, I, I point this out to my students and people like... They say, I thought I believed everything in the Bible, but I apparently I haven't read the fine print. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. In order for human beings to stand before God and for the Lord to say, what's the status of your life? All he has to do is pull out the recording of everything we've ever said 
since we were young. That is just the worst news I have ever heard. I'm not kidding you. I mean, that is terrible. You know, the offhanded words, not just the ones when you're driving, but those two. Oh, my goodness. See, this is what Isaiah is thinking, and he's saying it's the heart that has produced this. Let's go back to Isaiah. And now he says, I am completely undone. I am completely despairing. Now, the Lord has brought this about. He wants Isaiah to realize that he is despairing because look at the Lord's response. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs <laughs> from the altar. Which What altar? It's the uh, altar of sacrifice. This is a temple scene. The Old Testament temple had the altar of sacrifice. It always had a fire going. The fire was always going on that altar in the Old Covenant. 24-7, they kept that fire going. And that's where they made the burnt offerings and the sin offerings, the whole Levitical system. It all points to Christ, of course. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But that's where the seraphim, who uses tongs to get the coal out of... The seraphim is already flaming... And it has to use tongs to get this thing out of... How hot is this? That's the idea. We're supposed to actually ask that. We're supposed to say, how hot is God's wrath against evil? And therefore, how hot is the grace of God that removes the evil? He touched my mouth with it. Can you imagine? Isaiah's there. He's already scared spitless. And the thing comes over, this creature comes over with this coal from the altar and says, hold still. <sighs> touched my mouth. He said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for because of what was happening on the altar, because of the sacrifice on the altar. And this is all implied in it. And by the way, let me, let me pause there and ask and note something to you. In order for him to benefit from what was going on on the altar, it had to touch him. He's not standing there saying, well, that's a very interesting altar. Wow, this is an amazing vision. Yes, I'm scared of God. That's a good beginning. We should be. We should be awe-inspired. But something has to touch him, and it's the grace of God. It has to touch personally. It has to be a personal thing. People are saved, as one author put it that I read recently, we squeak into the kingdom one at a time. It has to actually... So have you said, Lord, would you cleanse me that way? Just me? I mean, would you do that for me? Rather than just say, I know you need to do it for other people, or I'm theoretically aware that it happens, or I, I'm watching from a... No, would you touch me with those coals? I hope you have, because that's actually what it means to come to Christ. So, the, the uh, angelic creature, the seraph, says, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And by the way, I read, read it too fast, but um, the voice of him who called out uh, shook everything. So this is the, the voice of these creatures literally shakes 
the interior parts of a human being and everything around. The voice is shaking. And now the voice says, now, you have been atoned for. Your sins are forgiven. And then I heard a voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Why? Because there is a war on. There is a war on. And people do need to hear what God has to say. I said, well, I'm right here. Send me. He's been cleansed. And now what he wants to do is serve. And he said, oh, by the way, he says, who will go for us? He means him, God himself, and the council of other spirit beings that are in the presence of everything that's going on there. This is a group thing that's going on. And in it can refer to the Trinity, but it probably refers to the other creatures that are there. And there's more on that if you want to ask me about it afterwards. But it's pretty well known that there are a bunch of creatures, a bunch of spirit creatures, and that when Yahweh speaks, he can speak on behalf of those that are serving him too. Who's going to go for us? We're in a war here. And Isaiah says, I've been drawn into this. I'm a human being, and I've been drawn into this, into this thing. I'll go. And um, he says, go and tell this people. Now, he's talking about Israel. And remember, the prophet's job was to indict Israel for covenant breaking after 200 years. And the violence and the horror of living in that society, his job was to call those people to repentance. He said, keep on hearing. You do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. You're going to tell the people this. It's in poetry. So you're, the picture is you're going to talk to people, but they're not going to listen. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What? That is not a happy message. What are you sending me here for? The Lord is sending him. He tells him to repent. This is only part of it. But he knows it's going to harden the hearts. You know, it's interesting. When the sun shines on clay... It hardens it. When it shines on wax, it softens it. This passage is quoted six times in the New Testament where people are exhorted, is your heart hard or soft toward the message of God? And these people's hearts were hard, and Isaiah was going to preach, and God said it's going to actually make them harder. And it's repeated six times in the New Testament because the apostles and the Lord Jesus himself knew especially prior to the to the uh, crucifixion of Christ, that there would be a hardness that would come. You say, well, that's that's difficult for me to understand. We don't understand how bad sin is. We don't understand how bad the human heart is without the grace of God. But this was going to be his message. And he says, how long am I going to have to do this? Verse 11. I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until... The day of the Lord is finished is really what it's about. But he says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses without people, the land in desolate waste, the Assyrians were going to come down and decimate the northern kingdom. He had warned them through the prophets for 200 years. And he says, I'm going to bring judgment and the cities will be deserted. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. It's a heavy discipline. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Now look at that last line. But the holy seed is the stump. 
What's he after? He means, I am going to cut this forest. I had trees, uh, I had some pine trees in, on my property, and they were bug infested. You know? You know what I mean? You've got trees, right? And they were completely bug invest, infest, invest, infested. So some friends came over and, uh, and cut them off. Now, what he's saying here is that's what I'm doing because sin has so infested this nation. But in the last line, he says, there's still life in the stump after you cut the tree, which means there's hope. And this is, re- this is repeated constantly through the, through the prophets. There is a hope that's coming, but this discipline coming against Israel is extremely important. So that was his message. And it was a cleansing and a calling, but there is hope still. Now you say, well, I'm still waiting for some good news. Oh, it's here. Let's, let's go back through this and think, how, what does this tell us about walking with the Lord today? It tells us several things. First is this. Go back to this original vision and remember that there is hope, but in between there's this understanding of the glory and the power of God and the danger of sin. All these things are behind the, behind this. Consider this. Three suggestions. The first is this. Be more impressed with the Lord than with the world. Isaiah went from being impressed with everything around him to being impressed almost, well, not just almost. I mean, look at the vision. He's much more impressed with the Lord. The Lord literally fills the screen in his life from this vision onward. And one of the things that we lose track of in our culture, because the culture pounds us all the time, be impressed with the world, be impressed with ourselves ever since the Enlightenment We have been very impressed with ourselves and not impressed at all with God since the 1600s. And now, even in our, even in our, all of our elite structures, do they ever say, you know, you guys need to think about God? No, they say, if you think about God and that helps you, that's fine. But really, truly, the fact is you are an accident and everything is accidental. Now, friends, that is Baal worship of the 21st century. That is the opposite of what God is saying in this passage. This is an amazing reality that that the Lord himself has to literally fill the screen. God's holiness and his majesty remind us that he alone is the gravitas, the central point. And and so when, when people, as Christians, they start losing their bearings, they watch enormous amounts of TV and pay very little attention to what God says about himself. And then they can't figure out why they feel hopeless and despairing about the world. It's because they need a gravitational center. Gravitas. The glory of God needs to come back to them. Oh, wait a minute. God is glorious. He knows what he's doing. He didn't buy a recliner. He's not retired. I have to think about that fairly often. (laughs) He's in the war. He's younger than I am. Did you know that? I'm looking out at most of you. And I put myself in the category. Do you know that the Lord is younger than you are? Even though he's ageless. Let him fill the screen in your mind. God's holiness and his majesty. Sometimes we just need to fall on our knees and say, You are glorious and I am not. Mike Mason, one of his books said, here's where it all begins. There is a God and it's not me. 
But that's not what you hear in our culture. Our culture says you are God, and we collectively are God, and we make up our own stuff all the time. And then we're despairing, and we're afraid of death, and we're confused, we're morally confused. Why? No gravitas, no center, no holiness of God, no majesty of God, no awesomeness of God. Am I getting too excited about this? I'm sorry, but it's important. First thing, be more impressed with the Lord than you are with the world and more impressed with the Lord than you are with yourself. And that's what happened to Isaiah. And that's why he is Isaiah. There's a Latin phrase that came up in the Reformation, soli deo gloria. We actually have it embedded in one of the areas out in the back here by the, uh, by the pavilion. It's, it's written in Latin on the, as you, Walk over and you can see it. Soli Deo Gloria. To, to God alone be the glory. He's the gravi- gravitational center of my life and of all human life. More impressed with him. All worship is sponsored by an awareness of God's holiness and glory. When you're praising the Lord, you're speaking to him and you're speaking about him. You're not speaking about yourself. You don't sing, we, our world sings worship songs about itself. We are the world. Do you remember that, uh, that, that's a hymn, a worship song to us. That's why when we come here, we sing worship songs to him. And it's good for your soul to do that. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. He's majestic. He's sovereign. He's amazing. Now, if you do that, the next thing is you will always, what this will do is the same thing it did to Isaiah. will always mean that we're more convicted by our own sin than the sins of everybody else or the culture. When you see the Lord the way he really is, you get convicted about your own sin much more than convicted about everyone else's sin. Do you ever notice folks who are very convicted about everyone else's sins? And we live in a culture that there's tons to, to complain about. There's a ton of sin in the culture. But I hear myself, I'm mea culpa. I do the same thing. But I look around at the culture and I go, oh, man, it's all going, you know where, and you know what, you know. <laughs> where am I? I remember the bumper sticker. Where am I going and why am I in this handbasket? I remember that was a little bumper sticker. We look at the world and we go, it's just terrible. It's worse than it's ever been. Every generation, by the way, has ever always said that. It's worse than it's ever been. It can't get any worse. Look at this guy's bad and those people are bad and that's all this and this horrible. This is the sin of our culture. Well, I tell you, when you see the glory of God, the first thing you ask about is yourself and you say, oh, Lord, please forgive me of my sins first. So that I can then, if I need to bring a a troubling message to somebody, I'm not bringing it like a Pharisee. The Pharisees were very convinced of their own holiness. I'm coming as a person who is lost myself without God. It'll always mean that we're more convicted about our own sin than the sin around us. And that, in turn, will always drive us to the glory of Christ. Why? Well, turn to the New Testament, to John. John's Gospel, chapter 12. This is right after the triumphal entry. The Lord Jesus, just days before he was crucified and resurrected. John chapter 12. 
and uh, he has cleansed the temple. That's a whole story in itself. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. John 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah. The prophet spoke, Jesus fulfilled it. And the fulfillment had to do with the bitterness of the people who refused to believe in Christ. That was prophesied. And he quotes Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John says, and who taught John how to do this kind of exposition of the Old Testament? Class? Jesus taught him how to do this. So he's doing the kind of exposition Jesus would have done with this passage. And he quotes Isaiah 53, Lord, nobody believes us. (laughs) Verse 39, therefore they could not believe For again, Isaiah said, now look at this one. This is right out of what we just looked at. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. He turned them over to their unbelief. Very frightening thing. John is quoting the same thing we just looked at. However, look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6? Who would John say was sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6? It's Jesus. (laughs) It's the second person of the Trinity as the king in God's kingdom. And you say, wait a minute. It said it, it, it's the Lord. It's Yahweh of hosts on that throne. Are you telling me? Well, which is it? Yes. (laughs) This is the glory of God in the person of Christ. That's why Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. And he told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the second person of the Trinity in glory. And he's seated on the throne overseeing human history, the glorious Lord. That's your Lord. That's why we are driven to this. So when you read Isaiah... And you say, I feel convicted, which is true, you should. You can go back to Isaiah if you want. Realize that's the Lord. Be more impressed with the Lord than with the world, which will always mean you're more convicted by your sin than the world's sin. And then that will drive you to the glory and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Because you think, well, wait a minute, Jesus brought grace to me. Yes, that's exactly what he does. He brings grace. He brings cleansing. So now we've come full circle. You go through this deep thing where Isaiah says, look how bad I am. And the Lord says, I know. That's why the sacrificial reality is. That's why the cross happened. Then the Lord himself takes that coal from the cross and he comes to the devastated one because that's what Isaiah said. I'm devastated. I'm devastated. I'm empty. Look at what I've done. I'm horrible. Lord, You know, as long as we're full of ourselves, it's kind of a good feeling. But when the stuffing gets knocked out of you by your own failures and you feel devastated, that's when the Lord says, come to me. Now we've got something to work with. I am going to touch you. I am going to use you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to atone for you. I'm going to say, stand up and walk. You could never do this before. 
a word to the devastated, to the people who... Now, I'm, I'm going to say something to those of you who feel in your hearts, woe is me. And that's not feeling sorry for yourself. It's feeling regret and sorrow for sin. And the first half of this message where you were just going, I'm feeling worse with every passing minute. Now let me speak something to you that is so glorious and so wonderful. It comes right out of this passage, and it is the message of the gospel. Look at what's gone on here in this, in this passage we looked at. The Lord initiated your cleansing, and I'm going to talk to you personally. The Lord initiated your cleansing. Isaiah said, I'm lost. The Lord said, I know, I have shown you that on purpose, and I am initiating a cleansing for you. Did you notice that in the Isaiah passage? Isaiah didn't cleanse himself. God did it, and God initiated it. In Romans 5, it says, while we were sinners, he died for us. Which means, as a Christian, if you sin, it doesn't really surprise God. And what he does is he says, I'm teaching you, I'm cleansing you, and I'm initiating the cleansing in your life. The Lord initiated your cleansing, Christian friend. Secondly, the Lord provided for your cleansing, and that's the sacrificial altar, which all of it pointed to the cross. So he takes a coal from the cross, and he puts it on your life. He provided for the cleansing. Third, he cleansed the worst part of your life. If you don't hear anything else this morning, you need to hear this. The area in which you have the most regret, the area in which you have the most guilt or shame or fear of the anger of God, that is the exact point at which the coals from the altar touched you. So I want you to take that. If you came in here this morning and then... You're hearing this and you're hearing about the judgment of God and you're hearing about the awesomeness of God and it just makes you feel worse and worse and worse. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the thing about which you feel the worst in your whole life. And maybe there's more than one. Maybe you need a group of them. And I want you to see the Lord saying, my whole purpose is to touch you with the coals from the altar. And you will be atoned for and you will be forgiven forever. And so perfect will be this forgiveness that you will be useful in my hand. Even if the world doesn't like what you have to say, you will be fine with me. I want you to see that happening in your heart. The Lord initiates the cleansing. The Lord provides the cleansing. And the Lord touches us where we hurt the worst. Remember that regret is an important thing. And I've mentioned many times, if you don't have any regrets, you just have a bad memory. I'm looking out at some of you. You're old enough to have a lot of regrets. You should have some regrets. Um, But regret, when it's touched by grace, becomes wisdom. Regret, when it's touched by grace, becomes wisdom. It becomes humility. It makes you so useful to God It makes you so useful to God to have him come and say, yes, you're screwed up and you're a person of unclean heart and you're among a whole race of people with unclean hearts. But I have touched you right where it hurts the worst and I have healed that. And here's the fourth thing. The Lord has cleansed you completely and eternally. 
And the proof is in the pudding here with uh, him being called into service. Uh, the Lord, he, in order to use Isaiah, he had, to, he had to cleanse him completely. Forgiveness is total. It's, it's not partial. And I've mentioned this on many occasions. First John chapter one, verses eight to chapter two, verse two. I'm not going to read it. We'll be here too long. And I'm, these are my closing points, by the way. We're almost done. Okay. Oh, praise God. I know what you're thinking. But let me stress that this cleansing that he designed ahead of time for you, that he supplied to you, that he has applied to the place in your soul that you hurt the worst, is a complete cleansing. The forgiveness is total. Otherwise, Isaiah could not be called into service. Now, there are degrees of sin. Some sins are worse than others. Sometimes people say, oh, all sin's the same. No, it's only the same in one respect. Any of it will kill you. That's true. But sins are not the same. Some are much worse than others. And there's there are degrees of punishment in hell, by the way. But there are no degrees of forgiveness. Forgiveness is complete. You're either completely forgiven or you're not forgiven at all. And once you are completely forgiven, it is forever So that's why when you come to the Lord Jesus and he takes and the father takes the coals and the Lord applies them to you and you are this new creature, you are free. You're free from shame. You're free from guilt. You're free from all of that. And that the the automatic response to that, if you if it's happened to you, the automatic response is, Lord, how can I be useful to you in some way? Not how can I be important on God's team? No. How can I be useful? Because I've been humbled. Uh, my regrets have been touched by grace. All I want is the wisdom to be able to be used by you. That's what it produces. You are completely cleansed. You can't be partially forgiven. That's why when you get baptized, even if you get spritzed, we dunk people here because it's a total thing. Back out of the water. You're completely cleansed. But even if you're spritzed, You'll have to be in the Presbyterian part of heaven. But nevertheless, (laughs) it represents the same thing. It represents the Lord completely covering you with his grace, which is why you should be baptized on the 20th if you haven't already. And if you have been baptized, my friend, you stay wet for the rest of your life and clean for the rest of your life. Clean for the rest of your life. Be more impressed with God. More convicted of sin, but absolutely more convinced of what he's done for you as a believer. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and we're going to pray and sing here in just a moment. Father, would you please impress upon us? And I pray for the hearts of those who came in here today sort of brokenhearted, maybe crushed in their spirit. Thank you for reminding us in Psalm 34 that you are with everyone who is crushed in spirit and brokenhearted. And that you heal the cripples, because that's all of us. And that those of us who have felt very, very low in your presence, we thank you for drawing us forward into the grace of Christ. May we live constantly in that grace and offer it to one another. And may we live the miracle, just like that man who stood up from the stretcher he was on, the miracle of walking in your grace. I pray for the hearts of those who were brokenhearted when they came in here today. And I pray for anybody who has not yet come to Christ.
that that they would come into the grace, that the message of the grace that you've given us in Jesus would, would not harden hearts, but it would soften them. We trust you for these things, and we thank you, Father, for this wonderful passage in Isaiah. In Jesus' name, amen.